you uh, saw your video, I'm not old. I've seen these things only in reruns, maybe on BTV or something. But in the 50s and 60s, um, you may remember or have seen reruns that for the most part, married couples were often shown sleeping in separate beds. It was as if no one wanted to acknowledge that married couples slept in the same bed. Um, for example, it was not until four years into its run that I Love Lucy showed Lucy and Desi in the same bed. The first three years of the show, they were in twin beds whenever there was a scene like that. Now, of course, things have changed. <laughs> Even network shows are unashamed of showing uh, the pursuit of passion. And of course, if you get your cable TV or online TV or whatever, do people still use cable TV? I mean, like we have YouTube TV, so I mean, I wouldn't go back to cable. Some people, yeah. You have cable? Some people, yeah. There's like a couple of people that have cable TV. Most, I'm assuming, yeah, yeah. My mom still has cable. <laughs> but either way, whatever. Um, you pretty much would know that uh, there is no holds barred when it comes to showing virtually pornographic sex and definitely not between married people. It seems almost every show has some sort of sexual overtones at the very least, and marriage and sexual intimacy are not in most of these shows in any way normally connected. They are, they are separate things. In fact, in a lot of the media, a lot of shows, marriage really itself isn't even seen as desirable. It's actually often depicted that marriage is the problem. The wife is unsatisfied, the husband is usually a buffoon. The marriages, marriages always seem to have problems, and unfaithfulness is encouraged as a solution. You just need to find somebody that speaks to your soul. Stella needs to go and get a groove back or whatever. <laughs> okay, if you've ever seen that book or that movie. So pretty much other than the Hallmark Channel or Pure Flakes, um, you're not going to really see much about real marriage or the real purpose for marriage in the media. Now you recall the first purpose of marriage we talked about was companionship. God made sure Adam realized every other created thing was different from him. And then he created Eve to be his partner and companion. And so God's ideal of, of one man and one woman for life is created right in the process of God creating everything else. They were the first family. And now, of course, we know sin has come in and, and sin has made marriage, shall we say, harder than it's intended to be. In fact, it's made every relationship harder than it's intended to be. Not, not just marriage. It, it's hard to be friends with people sometimes. It, it's just hard to Get along with co-workers sometimes, let alone your, your spouse. And next week, we're going to start our dive into that and what we can do about it, considering Christ's sacrifice and how Christ can and, and will and should transform relationships. Now, the second purpose of marriage we talked about last week was godly children. Traditional family is the ideal situation for nurturing godly and productive children to adulthood. Now, this does not mean that every marriage will or has to produce children. It also doesn't mean that every child's going to exactly turn out like we hope. Nor does it mean that if you want children but you do not have them, God has cursed you or something like that. Duh. 
mean that there will not be single parent families and that those single parent families can't produce wonderful children because they can't. It does mean that this is God's ideal. But again, there's sin. And in a couple weeks, well, about three weeks, three weeks, because Dan Andrews is preaching in between there. Um, we're going to talk about how sin really complicates raising kids. And all the parents are thinking, that's right, those kids and their sin, their sin really complicates raising kids. Well, guess what? Guess what, parents? Your sin really complicates raising them, too. It's both. But again, in Christ, there is hope even for the toughest kid and even for the most struggling parents. Now today we're going to go to the third purpose of marriage, which you're probably guessing because I've already hinted at it. Which, uh, I, my guess is some of you will be a little bit uncomfortable talking about this morning. Because we don't normally talk about sex in church. However, sexual intimacy is something God created, and therefore it is good. If God created it, his idea can't be bad. Now, it can be used wrongly, but that wasn't God's idea. God's idea was for the man to leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two become one flesh. The one flesh being the intimacy part. So the third purpose of marriage is to provide the safest context for physical intimacy. We're going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. You ever notice, this is just an aside, this isn't in the notes, whenever you go to a passage, whenever you think about going to something in Corinthians, you know that there's some problem that Paul has to deal with, right? It's always something with those guys. Those Corinthians, always something. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's what the Corinthians were saying. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement, for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Thus, a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. Marcus Paul was single. Notice he says it's a concession, not a command. I wish all were as myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say, it's good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn, with the ESV as with passion. So the Corinthians, being the sort of extremists that they were, they had somehow decided that maybe, maybe you know what? There's so much, there's so much immorality around us. Maybe it's just best, maybe it's just best if, if husbands and wives just, just never argue. Let's just not have any intimacy because, because there's there's clearly problems. Remember that they're surrounded by a culture. That was that was hypersexualized. It was sex with ritual prostitutes was a normal part of pagan temple worship. It was 
considered very normal in that culture for men to have mistresses or even slaves. So some in Corinth decided that sexual relations in any form were dangerous, or maybe somehow sinful, or at least were going to lead to sin. So that's what Paul is addressing here. And in this, he makes it clear that the context for intimacy is within marriage. God created sex, so it's good. But he also set marriage. No, I don't need a car warranty. He also set marriage as the boundary for its proper expression. As he says in verse 9, it is much better to be married than to burn. Now, I'm not sure why the ESV adds the word with passion there. That is not in the Greek text. It just literally says it is better to marry than to burn. The desire for intimacy is strong, and that fire is meant to be contained within the bounds of marriage. So growing up, when I was growing up, a long time ago, We had, in our kitchen, a Royal Canadian airtight wood-burning stove. Now folks, this stove was an amazing bit of engineering. It, it could just, it could burn every little bit of wood down to almost nothing. If you take the ashes out of that thing, it'd be almost no ashes. It would just get such complete combustion. It was, it was, it was awesome. And it would generate an amazing amount of heat. I mean, my dad would have it 90 degrees in the kitchen when it was 30 below outside. I mean, we'd go in the kitchen and we'd just open the front door and just have the screen door open 30 below outside because it was so hot in the kitchen. That thing could just kick up the heat. And it was warm. Have you ever, have you ever been somewhere where it's heated with a wood burner? That's warm. That's none of this forced air. Okay. This was true warmth. You were just warm. Okay. Mar marriage is like the Royal Canadian. If the fire's inside the stove, it heats the house without causing any damage. But if the fire gets outside the stove, you're going to have a bad time. Someone or something is going to get burned. The fire is only good when it's inside the stove. The fire outside the stove is not good for anybody. Nobody's going to come into the kitchen. I mean, I mean, we had this wood. You know, I, my dad wasn't going to come into the kitchen and just bring a pile of wood in from outside, make up a little little Boy Scout teepee thing there, you know, and on the slate floor and light it up right in the kitchen, right? No, of course not, because I'd burn the house down. Exactly what intimacy outside of marriage is like. It's trying to have a fire outside the stove. It's playing with fire without the proper container for the fire to be in. Now, this echoes other teaching in the New Testament. For example, Hebrews 13:4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Now, immorality here, the word immoral, immorality. Includes, it's where we get pornography from, pornea. Includes any kind of sexual intimacy outside of marriage. And of course, then adultery is just a subset of that, right? Because that's intimacy with someone other than our spouse when we're married. So you're pretty much covering every circumstance there. He says that marriage is to be held in honor and undefiled. 
intimacy is kept within marriage. Paul also warns, he says that since marriage is the proper context for intimacy, that to deprive a spouse of intimacy is not proper under normal circumstances. The fire is meant to be within marriage, and whether we like it or not, if that need isn't being met, somebody might decide to go find another place to light a match. I'm not saying it's right, because it's not, but it's realistic. It happens. I said under normal circumstances, because there are sometimes not normal circumstances. Paul gives the example of devoting time to intense prayer. I would add, what if one spouse is sick? If you're undergoing chemotherapy for cancer, you're probably not feeling like wanting to get you know, a kissy face. What about when the kids are young and literally it takes so much time and energy you can barely function? Yeah. Oh. Barely function. As with anything, we have to be understand that while physical intimacy is one purpose for marriage, it is not the only purpose. There are other purposes. Also, and maybe you've heard some preachers say this before, and if they have, shame on them. I'd like to note that this passage has been used improperly by some teachers to try and say that a spouse should be able to demand intimacy whenever they want and not be refused. Has anyone else ever heard that teaching besides me? Survey says, eh. It doesn't say that. It says one spouse should not, as a practice, deprive the other spouse. It does not say that one spouse is entitled to demand intimacy whenever they want. You want to cause some real problems in your marriage? Try going down that road. Yeah, that's not going to fly. Okay, that's not going to fly. Now I realize that everything I've just said, that all, all this kind of teaching, completely flies in the face of everything going on in our culture. Right? We live in a culture that believes any restriction on sexual oppression. Or sexual expression is somehow oppression. That if any if, if anyone's ever restricted sexually in any possible way, they're being they're being oppressed. We live in a culture where the majority of our entertainment media is either directly or tangentially celebrating, promoting, or exhibiting various forms of immorality. We even have apps for phones specifically designed for sharing explicit pictures with other people. That is what Snapchat was originally invented for. The guy who made Snapchat made it so people could share new pictures with one another and then they disappear after so many seconds. That's what it was originally for. And there's apps for just finding people to get physical with, right? That's the purpose of Tinder and all its copycat apps, just to find somebody to hook up with. 
question any of this, we're looked at as if we're crazy. How could you possibly deny people their biological urges? We're sexual beings. Think about it, it's interesting how in our culture, we have become a culture where the primary identification for many people is their sexuality. That is how they primarily identify themselves, is by their sexuality. And how can we possibly expect people to wait for marriage to have sex? God, we can't. I remember talking to a guy a few years ago, well, many years ago, who just couldn't imagine marrying someone that he had not slept with because what if they weren't sexually compatible? Well, I don't know if that's a thing or not, but if people waited until marriage, that wouldn't be an issue because the only person you need to be compatible with is the person you, the only person you've ever been intimate with. Problem solved. Further, remember purpose number two? Godly offspring, right? We got an epidemic of children born to single parents, and that's tragic. And those children, they still deserve all the love and support that all children deserve. Not the kids' fault. And those moms need support and love and often a lot of help. Okay? That's why we support alternatives. See, some people think alternatives is just about abortions. Alternatives is not about stopping abortion. Alternatives is about helping young moms, young dads, have productive, they're, they're about fulfilling purpose too, having godly offspring. Helping people who are in just a tough situation because it happens, and we know it happens. Helping moms and helping families toward wholeness and toward Jesus. But I can promise you that epidemic would be a lot less if people followed the biblical idea for where sex belongs, which is within marriage, which is normally the best place for children to be born. I used to tell the college guys back when I was in college ministry, we talked about this. They talk about this girl or that girl, things they've done, and you know. I used to say to them, guys, we are not animals that we do not control ourselves. Not animals. We're not, we're not a dog or a squirrel, whatever it is, rats. They, we, we, we don't have to fulfill every biological urge and drive the minute we feel it. Part of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And it's okay to exercise self-control. Now, having said all that, I want to say that, as with all things, many people, maybe even most, have or will not live up to God's idea. That's why there's forgiveness. Not every spouse will be faithful. Again, there can be forgiveness. Now, sometimes there can be, because some, some spouses are just so bad that you couldn't have a divorce. It doesn't have to be necessarily. But I'm also going to remind us that it's a lot easier to keep the fire in the stove than it is to have to have the fire come 
put the house up, but the house burned down. last purpose of the church. See, you're getting a two for today. I'm getting the fourth purpose, too. Aren't you glad I'm not going to talk about sex for the entire half hour? <laughs> last purpose of the church has to do with how we reflect the love of Jesus for his bride, the church, which I call spiritual modeling. Purpose four. I'm going to read you a long passage from Ephesians. Starting at verse 17, actually. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. You know, anytime the scriptures say something like, understand what the will of the Lord is, my ears perk up, right? And I go, ooh, ooh, I like this, because it's just, it's just going to, because sometimes I'm not real smart. So it's going to come right out and tell me what the will of the Lord is. This is great. That's handy. I don't have to guess. God really wants to He's going to tell me. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and songs with a good backbeat and songs with lots of electric guitar. Oh, that's not Amen. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband's the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave him up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and the wife see that she respects her husband. That was a long reading, I know. But I want us to make sure we have the full context, because sometimes we read the passage verse 21 on, not realizing it's part of a longer passage where he's talking about what the will of the Lord is, not being foolish, and, and that sort of thing, and being filled with the Spirit. And so the fourth purpose of marriage is understood in that context. And it's about living out God's will and living according to His Spirit. Now I'm going to have a lot to say about this passage next week. Because I know it's a passage that everybody likes to have an opinion. Everybody loves to have an opinion on this passage. I'm going to say for now, about all the things that right now you're thinking, is he going to talk about that whole submit thing and what does it mean for guys to love their wives? Like, blah, 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 blah. Okay, right. Just saw that some people get intense about that. We'll talk about that next week. Because I'm going to argue that to understand this passage as it relates to the marriage relationship itself, it has to be seen in light of Genesis chapter 3 and how sin corrupted marriage. If you don't understand Genesis chapter 3, you're going to come to the wrong conclusion about Ephesians chapter 5. Once we see it in that light, all these words that we love to hate, like submission and respect and all that, are going to make a lot more sense. Okay. So you can save your, your fruit growing until next week. <laughs> right. The main point I want us to get today 
is that in this passage, God intends for marriage to be a spiritual model of his love and redemptive work for his bride and church. Paul tells us here that marriage is a model of how Christ and the church interact, and that Christ's love and sacrifice for the church are the model of how marriage is to work. They're to model each other. In an ideally functioning marriage, there is love and there is sacrifice. There's nurturing, just like there is between Christ and his church. Now, I think that's kind of a critical thing in a world where so many marriages end in divorce and where so many churches are about anything but Jesus and in his name loving and nurturing people. Those two things are tied together. Worldly churches that are centered on worldly things are going to produce worldly marriages. And worldly marriages are going to tend to lead to worldly churches. We need families that love and give themselves up for one another like Christ does. And we need churches that will love and serve one another and their community like Christ does his church. Healthy marriages reflect what a church should be. And healthy churches should nurture the love of Jesus between spouses and families. You know, we spend, it's interesting to me, we spend a lot of time talking about a relationship with Jesus. But in all honesty, most of what we teach and how we pursue that relationship, especially, you know, in the last hundred years or so, is basically transactional. Jesus died for me, therefore I should do these things, and he should do these things for me. That's transactional. Jesus died on the basic rules. I'll do these, I'll put ten bucks in the plate because Jesus died for me, whatever it is. It's a pretty lacking teaching about true love relationships and I think that reflects a lot on how marriages play out in the church. Marriages tend to also become, over time, very transactional. This spouse does this. That spouse does that. We coordinate the kids and work. And somebody's got to get this one to sports. And somebody's got to get this one to music. And, and we got to do this. And there's not nearly enough loving relationship going on. Because everything's become transact. You do this for me, I'll do this for you. There's not that loving relationship always on the level of Jesus and his church. I'm not saying there's not love there. I'm saying that the central feature of many marriages is not a loving relationship. It is transactional. We are two people living under the same roof, transacting a variety of family business. spend next Sunday talking about changing that by understanding how sin has damaged marriage and what Jesus is doing about it. So if you want some homework, you can go read Genesis chapter 3 before next Sunday. So I'm going to have a lot to say about that. And I'm going to say some things that maybe you have not heard before about Genesis chapter 3. Okay. So now we've got an outline. Right? The four purposes of marriage. Companionship, nurturing children, Providing the proper context for physical intimacy that gives us those children. 
and spiritually modeling Christ and his love for his church. And we know sin has deeply corrupted each of those worlds. And we know every one of them is harder than God intended. Everybody, did you ever hear the old military axiom about how every plan works until it hits the enemy. Every every set of parents think that they've got this whole, they know how they're going to raise kids until they have kids. And then it all goes up. Uh, I have kids, I'm going to... Oh, believe me, I had all sorts of good ideas. Yeah, okay. They, they were gone. They flew out of the face of the enemy. Every parent, every parent has ideas. Okay? Every husband and wife. I, I don't think anybody, at least normal, stands at the altar and gives their vows thinking that they're going to end up in a transactional relationship or that it's, they, they got ideas. Right? We all had ideas of how marriage was going to be and how great it's going to be. I don't think anybody goes in. I hope not. I hope nobody stands at the altar and goes, man, marriage is going to really stink. <laughs> <laughs> right? You guys know that song, right? Jake Osman? Love Stinks? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Something like that. Yeah. 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 I've never seen that movie. So. Yeah. <laughs> because that movie has Adam Sandler in it. And when I see Adam Sandler, I go the other direction. Because there are a few actors I dislike more than Adam Sandler. So, anyway, we won't have a sermon on Adam Sandler. So right? It's all hard, right? Everybody thinks they got all your great ideas about marriage and parenting and everything, and then they get married and they have kids and it's like, whoop! It's all hard for God. That's because of sin. But in Christ, we're going to find that there's hope for the redemption of every one of these four purposes so that through them we can serve God, we can be whole, and we can be happy and fulfilled in every aspect of every relationship. Let's pray. Father God, now that we've looked at why you created marriage and family, we acknowledge that it's not always as easy as it was. Because sin has corrupted your ideal, and now we have a lot of work to do. But yet, Jesus didn't come just to redeem us from hell. But in fact, he came so that we can have life and life abundantly. And part of that is marriage and children and families that <laughs> overcome the, the curse of sin. We can live in, in new gospel life. We look forward to that in every one of our relationships.